0: Thank you, Robin, very much for the introduction and also, uh, most probably, for the invitation to uh, join you here today and have the opportunity to uh, share our work in clinical eye transplantation um, with your wonderful group here. So just to outline my talk today, I'm gonna start out by reviewing the problem of severe hypoglycemia and hypoglycemia unawareness and how we think about it affecting uh, patients with type 1 diabetes. And we're gonna examine the current approach to islet transplantation in the treatment of type 1 diabetes that's been under uh, clinical um, evaluation here in the United States. And then finally go over the mechanisms uh, that defined effective glucose counter regulation in type 1 diabetes um, and how that relates to risk for severe hypoglycemia as well as the correction of these uh, mechanistic defects following islet transplantation. So as uh, this audience is well aware, type one diabetes is a disease caused by autoimmune destruction of the insulin producing islet beta cells. Currently affects uh, one and a quarter million individuals in the United States. There's an increasing incidence of type one diabetes, so such as estimates are that by 2050, there will be 5 million uh, individuals affected uh, with this disease in the United States. Uh, Currently, um, multi-dose injection or continuous subcutaneous insulin infusion pump therapy is required for survival. Um, And despite the increasing availability of um, insulin delivery and, and, and glucose monitoring technologies, Only 30% of adult patients defined as being above the age of 25 receiving specialized diabetes care in the United States are achieving the American Diabetes Association recommended target of a hemoglobin A1C, less than 7%. And uh, it is possible to replace beta cells by transplantation uh, currently using Allogeneic islets, which are isolated from deceased donor pancreata, although alternative uh, sources of um, islet tissue are being derived from stem cell sources, as as many in this group are working on. Um, But the allogeneic islet transplantation has been under phase three investigation for those patients who are experiencing severely problematic hypoglycemia or have already um, been committed to immunosuppression in support of a uh, kidney transplant. So I'd just like to introduce a case of a 35-year-old woman who came to us with a 16-year history of type 1 diabetes. She had no microvascular complications, uh, but did have hypoglycemia unawareness, such that she had no symptoms at any uh, low blood glucose. Um, And this had resulted in the the past year, uh, six severe hypoglycemic episodes that required glucagon administration by her husband or co-workers or the uh, calls for emergency medical services. Um, she employed an insulin pump, was monitoring her glucose 9 to 12 times a day. Um, it was severely impacting uh, her ability to care for her uh, uh, twin 2 year olds and maintain her job as a uh, s- s- field social worker. This is her uh, continuous glucose monitoring um, um, and This uh, demonstrates interstitial glucose, uh, uh, recorded uh, continuously over 72 hour period. Each uh, color gives you the uh, interstitial glucose during uh, a consecutive 24 hour period. And you can see that um, she's experiencing um, uh, rapid swings from high to low glucose, uh, uh, which we refer to as glucose lability, Um, and then uh, despite uh, going to bed rather uh, reasonably uh, stable with her, her glucose. Two out of three nights, she has uh, um, hypoglycemia. The sensor doesn't detect less than 40 milligrams per deciliter, so there's one uh, very concerning night of prolonged hypoglycemia. Uh, it has become aware since the uh, availability of continuous glucose monitoring that the uh, dead-in-bed syndrome of type 1 diabetes were are found expired uh, um, and seemingly undisturbed uh, is due to severe hypoglycemia um, as, uh, as demonstrated here in someone who uh, had died and on interrogation of their glucose monitor had uh, experienced severe hypoglycemia um, predating um, uh, their death. Severe hypoglycemia um, is the leading cause of death in type 1 diabetics who are less than 30 years of age. Um, And above 30 years of age, cardiovascular disease death becomes the number one cause, yet there is an interplay of uh, risk factors for um, sudden cardiac death with uh, hypoglycemia, and so it's unclear how much of the sudden cardiac death occurring in older individual type 1 diabetes may be contributed to by hypoglycemia. When we consider um, the occurrence of severe hypoglycemia and that relationship to unawareness, um, uh, th- these are data from Europe and are broken down into uh, patients with a um, uh, uh, recent or long-standing longstanding uh, history of the disease and you could just say that uh, uh, on average about um, uh, a third of individuals may experience a severe hypoglycemic episode in the past year and that risk of experiencing severe hypoglycemia is six-fold increase if patients report impaired symptom recognition low glucose. Uh, but it's, 20, oops, it's 20-fold increased uh, for those individuals who have no symptom awareness when they are hypoglycemic. And, and this really accounts for the, uh, many of the patients having these recurrent uh, severe hypoglycemic events, and so the, the group that are having the most difficulty uh, with this problem. But the problem is um, uh, likely more pervasive than uh, recognized in clinical practice. These are data from the Tech 1 diabetes exchange um, where uh, patients, uh, these are again adults over the age of 25 uh, reporting um, the event of uh, hypoglycemia resulting in seizure or loss of consciousness in the prior three months. And on average, it's about 8% of the population. And uh, and this is um, a, a about 3 times more than what could be gleaned from the uh, electronic medical records. So a lot of these events are occurring and in our fragmented healthcare delivery system are not always getting back to the uh, clinicians caring for them. And what's I think more striking about uh, these data is that the um, teaching from the DCCT trial, um, when we're moving from NPH and regular insulins to pumps and more of a basal bolus uh, delivery approach to type 1 diabetes that as you push the A1C lower you saw more severe hypoglycemia and now that inverse relationship is no longer seen so that telling a patient to raise their A1C that will solve their hypoglycemia does not seem to be um, the, the, the approach that will is either be effective or, or acceptable by, by most patients. So the, the uh, the technique for islet cell transplantation is um, shown by this cartoon, where a, a pancreas uh, that is procured from a deceased donor who does not have diabetes, and um, and this would be a pancreas that um, could be considered for whole pancreas transplantation, um, but for many reasons related to the increasing overweight and obesity in our country. Um, pancreases that have fatty infiltration are not suitable technically for whole whole organ transplantation, and so uh, as a complementary use of donated organs, we can utilize uh, these uh, pancreases um, for uh, isolation of the islet cells. This occurs um, in a GMP facility with the collagenase uh, digestion and centrifuge purification, and the purified islets are then Um, brought to uh, a recipient who has type 1 diabetes and are administered uh, to the portal vein. And um, this can either be accessed by a laparoscopic surgical approach or the approach we use is um, in interventional radiology with a percutaneous transhepatic catheterization of a portal vein branch, um, uh, uh, passage of the catheter to the main portal trunk, and then, the, uh, and then the islets are dripped in under, under gravity um, and enter the portal circulation. The uh, group at the Karolinska Institute um, co-incubated the islets in, in culture part of transplantation with fluorodeoxyglucose, and then they brought their patients from the interventional radiology suite down to the PET-CT scanner to look at the fate of where these islets are, are ultimately residing, and they, uh, they end up in every segment of the liver, but in a rather heterogeneous distribution. Um, and uh, can quantify the, uh, um, the amount of violets that make it uh, uh, from, that survive this, at least in michelin uh process. And um, when this study came out, it, this procedure had been done for, for years, but no one had ever really... Looked at it from this perspective, and everyone was very glad to see that the lung fields were uh, were clear. So, um, in two thousand and four, the NIH started um, an initiative called the Clinical. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Do they stay there? Is there any way of tracking them long term? The, we believe they stay there. There's no, like genetic markers, one could insert to make them visible X times later. Well, not uh, not in. In an animal model, I'm sure, but not in a a clinical setting. So it's not been done that I'm aware of. So in um, 2004, the NIH uh, sponsored the development of a clinical transplant consortium um, where the goal was to address two populations of patients with type 1 diabetes, those experiencing severe hypoglycemia or those already immunosuppressed, uh, with a kidney transplant. The islet um, manufacturing procedure was standardized across um, eight uh, institutions in North America. Uh, and uh, these protocol numbers are somewhat arbitrary, but the islet alone protocol um, is CITO 7 uh, At Penn, we did 11 of these 48 uh, subjects, and and the two-year outcomes data have recently been, been published. Um, and I'll be sharing uh, the uh, mechanistic data that we've done on the 11 uh, patients at Penn with you today. The islet after kidney protocol um, involved 24 patients, two of which participated at Penn, and the, the, while the islet manufacturing was the same, the immunosuppression approach was also very similar, except the maintenance immunosuppression for the islet alone was that which had been developed for the Edmonton protocol, um, <laughs> while for kidney transplantation, it remained the immunosuppression that was in place for protection of the (coughs) the kidney kidney graft. Um, In both uh, protocols, you received islets from a single donor pancreas, and then there was uh, hope that um, patients would not need more than a single uh, infusion of islets, and so they were were assessed 75 days after the infusion, and if there was the presence of um, uh, ongoing Hyperglycemia, they could qualify to receive a second infusion of islets. Um, and the, the goal here for insulin independence is almost like a surrogate for a sufficient engraftment of islet, islet mass. Um, if you were insulin dependent with islets, one infusion, you were followed. If you required a second infusion, you were then followed. And the primary endpoint came from discussions with the FDA and was um, to have an A1C less than 7% without severe hyperglycemic episodes. Uh, considering that everyone had to have documented severe hypoglycemic episodes to be to be enrolled, a secondary endpoint, which was the primary endpoint before the FDA was involved, was an A one C six point five or better, which we um, uh, which which was retained as a as a, a key secondary endpoint. So this, uh, while well, it was taking um, our group time to get these data published, um, other groups around the world in Australia, the United Kingdom, and Europe. Um, uh, adopted this A1C less than 7% without hypoglycemia, and they were showing uh, results um, with uh, A1C um, uh, at one and uh, two years being in the uh, low sixes, and where they had the data uh, collected to show the absence of severe hypoglycemia together with this A1C criteria, um, you saw responses over 80% at a year, um, and uh, uh, with less at, at, at two years. Now, how uh, these data are generated, if someone's lost a follow-up, they're considered a failure. And so, um, uh, in, our, in our NIH uh, um, CIT07 protocol, um, the, uh, on average, patients received uh, uh, almost 12,000 isle equivalents per kilogram. Half of these patients only received ballots from a single donor. Um, the uh, A1C was uh, 7.2 to start, uh, uh, with everyone having severe hypoglycemia at entry. And then the median A1C was 5.6 for two years follow up, with uh, 88% achieving this uh, uh, primary outcome, which was maintained at 71%, largely because uh, those uh, who did not stay in the protocol from year one to year two were considered failures. <coughs> so the, the protocol. Uh, I mentioned that the maintenance immune suppression was the same as that developed for the Edmonton protocol, which had not been uh, widely successful. And and, uh, a lot of blame had been placed on these agents for uh, the the failure of that protocol. But what we really um, focused on was uh, in our belief that the initial island of is what's important for the um, uh, long-term outcomes. And so how the patients were managed uh, intensive insulin therapy was maintained, a um, hairy uh, transplant to, uh, to maintain normal, gla- uh, real, really strict normal glycemia and protect the islets from hypoxia and, and increased metabolic demand until they could be revascularized by the hepatic arterial system. Um, uh, the prior approach had been uh, more surgical and that islets were given from a single donor. Hyperglycemia developed. You gave a dose insulin and listed for another donor pancreas. And so this time we said, let's give the islets a chance um, uh, before uh, relisting. Heparin was always given with the islet product to prevent portal vein thrombosis. Um, But now um, we actually continued unfractionated heparin uh, uh, for 48 hours at a PTT of uh, 50 to 60 seconds. And then they stayed on low molecular weight heparin for... Uh, a week following infusion to prevent even microthrombi from affecting the ultimate engraftment and remasterization of the islets. Um, Also an important difference is is now we become uh, much better with islet culture so that islets we can maintain in culture and and at least for a few days and even several days without losing uh, islet viability. Um, And this allows the initial immunosuppression to be given prior to the islets uh, being infused. So thymoglobulin, um, a T cell depleting agent is standardly used in solid organ transplantation, uh, but causes a cytokine release after the first dose. We could premedicate the first dose with the glucocorticoid. That glucocorticoid effect is lost by 48 hours. The cytokine um, effect is largely gone by the second and third dose, but we still give the uh, TNF-alpha uh, inhibitor a IV uh, an hour prior to the outlets being infused and then maintain a 10 day sub Q uh, course. And this is because TNF alpha is a um, a notorious cytokine for inducing apoptosis in in beta cells. So there are a lot of differences in how we manage the patient around the time of transplant, yet keep the uh, low dose calcium inhibitor and mTOR inhibitor the the same. So just to um, Uh, show what this looks like from a a metabolic management uh, around the time of transplant. These are average blood glucose from seven times daily glucose monitoring, Uh, four weeks. uh, These patients submitted records um, periodically, uh, uh, and so this just shows four weeks of data collected prior to transplantation. And then you can see in the first week following transplantation, their average glucose is in the 110s. And then by uh, the second and third weeks, um, you see a a further decrease in glucose. And to understand what's going on with their insulin requirements, this is now average daily insulin requirements which are in the thirties prior to transplantation. And you can see in week one, uh, we're down to uh, about uh, 25 units of insulin a day. And largely what's missing in the first week is correction dose insulin's not being required, but we're maintaining uh, basal insulin delivery uh, and carb coverage uh, with with insulin, and then what happens is in these first few weeks the patients are getting postprandial a little low and they're maybe waking up a little low, and so we're then the islets are forcing us to back off on the uh, uh, carb ratio and the and the basal uh, uh, doses, um, and then you see here there's a little after about four to eight weeks there's a bit of a steady state here where. You know, now people are on 15 units of insulin a day, they're maintaining very normal glucoses and at eight weeks we force titrate off the insulin to see how the islands are doing. And so you were considered insulin independent if your fasting glucose was no longer diabetic and if 90 minutes after uh, consumption of a, of a standardized mixed meal tolerance test boosts high protein as. as um, Uh, a 90 minute glucose had to be less than 180 and this has been shown to correlate with a two hour oral glucose tolerance test being above 200. So, um, and then the A1C had to be better than uh, uh, or equal to 6.5%. So essentially you had to meet targets for being non-diabetic. And at Penn, uh, seven of our 11 patients met these criteria with islets from a single donor. We had four individuals who um, whose only criteria they met was this 90-minute glucose being above 180. And so they um, resumed insulin and, uh, and waited for a second islet infusion, uh, after which uh, um, uh, they all were able to uh, achieve a period of insulin independence. Do you ever see hypoglycemic episodes? Does the hypoglycemic episode frequency change acutely, acutely after the transplant? Yeah. So why? A- acutely, we don't see... Uh, there's no more problematic hypoglycemia so um, where they there may be hypoglycemia is we you know are targeting that you know say 80 to 120 range and so if they're constantly post glucose glucoses that are in the 70s or 60s we'll start backing off on their carb ratios so that um, but they're not having any more dangerous lows at that point so why didn't that work before the- because the islets, while we're trying to rest them, they can't help but but work because they're in the portal circulation, and as nutrients come through, the C peptide increases, and then it goes and then it goes away. So they're turning on and turning off, but they're turning on and turning off with a glucose that's around normal, as opposed to uh, forcing them to turn on with a glucose that's hyperglycemic and is going to create a lot of. Uh, uh, Metabolic stress and reactive oxygen and, and everything else that we know is going to then cause a uh, 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 death and loss of the, the beta cells. So, not being involved in it, here, that, that uh, fasting of 126 seems rather high to me. Is yeah. that low to keep an A1c below 70? Well, and, and that's why I say the. Um, You had to meet all of these and so the the most sensitive one is this 90-minute glucose so you're absolutely right and that that even those that met the 90-minute glucose had fasting glucoses that were you know better than 110 but when you challenge them and they're high then that tells you okay your islets aren't ready to do it all nobody um met all of these criteria except the fasting glucose but that's just what was in the the protocol um, but you're right, it, it's, it wasn't the driver of who goes back on insulin or not. Yeah. All right, so, so um, we like this test uh, at Penn where to get at an indirect measure of the surviving islet uh, functional beta cell mass, we determine the beta cell secretory capacity um, from a glucose potentiated arginine test. Uh, This shows insulin uh, levels following administration of the uh, amino acid arginine, which uh, elicits uh, uh, an acute uh, insulin response, and I'm showing you here data from uh, five patients when we had done a prior trial, the Edmonton Protocol, who did achieve insulin independence and agreed to come in to have this this test done, and I'm showing you all 11 patients who uh, uh, underwent the cito 7 protocol. and then there's 11 matched uh, non-diabetic controls that are determining the the, uh, the normal range, and so with the Edmonton protocol, we were uh, w- what's shown here is when you um, give arginine under fasting conditions, we don't see terrible uh, discrimination between these different uh, groups, but when you in- induce hyperglycemia uh, to 230 milligrams per deciliter, you're priming the beta cells and recruiting. Um, separate granules to the surface, and and essentially then when arginine is administered a second time, you're seeing a better representation of the surface area of beta cells available for uh, contributing to insulin secretion. And so this potentiated response uh, that best uh, represents the functional beta cell mass is only about 20 to 25% in patients who've been treated under the Edmonton protocol, and it all received balance from two two donor pancreases, Whereas uh, in the CITO seven, we are getting forty to fifty percent of uh, uh, of a basal secretory capacity. Now, this is with when we looked at the actual numbers of islets transplanted, it equated to a threefold efficiency in the surviving basal mass with this uh, CITO seven protocol versus what was done in the Edmonton protocol. I have a question about that. So, yeah. most patients that are received the Edmonton protocol, how many years post transplant? We're now uh, so our CIFT seven was uh, day seventy five post transplant. The Edmonton one, which we had done prior, we had assessed them at three months post transplant. Okay. So is it? Think it that an effect of age or anything could explain part of the problem? They're pretty. That's why we selected their that that time of assessment so that it's pretty comparable post post transplant time. Yeah, even though they were done, they weren't. You know they had all lost function well before the, the CITO seven uh, protocol was in place. So those those were historical data. When we look in the CITO seven protocol, uh, just at the beta cell secretory capacity, so taking this glucose potentiated acute insulin response to arginine, the hashed area is the range of normal. Uh, so uh, two individuals had very entirely normal secretory capacity. Um, And everyone else was sort of in this uh, range, um, above which uh, this would be sort of the 20 to 25% that we had on average with the Edmonton protocol is down here. And this is the uh, one patient here who um, uh, uh, has a horse farm, uh, fell off a horse, ruptured a hepatic artery pseudoaneurysm that had been uh, uh, likely consequence of the interventional radiology procedure, had to go to a local trauma center, uh, and uh, and received uh, left hepatic artery embolization, which likely took out the islets and the distribution of of that artery. So so she, uh, she now she went back on some insulin um, after year one, and she uh, has maintained stable graft function on on low dose insulin. But it. Um, but our goal is to really get you know in, into this reserve, more of this reserve capacity, uh, which which has shown in our patients to result in very stable uh, long term uh, uh, function. Did you look earlier than 60 days? So it looks like basically by, by your first time point, it's asymptotic for the most part. But so, what happens between day zero and 60? Well, so they're all on insulin from I zero see. to 60. I and, then, and now, now some of them go up from 60 to a year. And what we think that part of that is, is that this was an effect of the beta cell rest. And so we'd only had, the, they only had two weeks off of insulin before we first tested them. And now those islets have had you know, more, more time to, uh, to actually d- decide what the workload of that individual required. And, uh, and so for some of them, uh, we see it go up. So, we're also interested in how islets affect um, uh, insulin sensitivity, and so we've done um, uh, clamps with stable isotopes looking at insulin action on, on the liver. Um, uh, that um, because there's no portal insulin delivery in, in type 1 diabetes, hepatic insulin sensitivity is impaired. This is corrected following transplantation, um, as is insulin action on skeletal muscle with uh, peripheral glucose disposal. Uh, similarly impaired in type one, type 1 diabetes prior to transplantation and that's uh, corrected following, following transplant. So the doses of this glucocorticoid-free immunosuppression being used we do not see insulin resistance uh, uh, affecting these uh, patients. When we look at long-term metabolic control um, in these patients uh, this is now uh, the, the group at Penn so um, uh, the these box plots give me, median, mean, the 75th, 25th percentile, and the, the error bars are the entire range of values. So this is A1C. Um, our goal is being better than 6.5%, and you can see that all patients maintain this for uh, two years of follow-up. These so are the kidney transplants? No, these are, I'm sorry, are all the islet alone transplants. Um, the 11 islet alone is done as part of the cito 7 protocol. Um, and then, in terms of their insulin requirements, um, uh, this is uh, this is the uh, one subject who at six months had it received ballots from a second donor, was then um, off, and then uh, is also the same patient who I talked to you about the horse accident. And then she's back on uh, uh, low dose insulin thereafter. Okay. Now, in terms of their uh, Hypoglycemic unawareness, so this is uh, the Clark score where four or more indicates impaired awareness. One patient came in with a five, but essentially they were all sixes and sevens, so they were very very unaware of uh, of where their glucose was low. And the glycemic lability index was developed by the Edmonton group um, utilizing um, frequent blood glucose monitoring and the temporal variability uh, in glucose and they established the uh, 433 that if you were higher than that, that you were the worst of uh, 10% of their type 1 diabetes population in, in, in Alberta. And so you can see all the patients that uh, we enrolled were you know v- very well above that uh, worst 10th percentile. Um, the uh, one patient who hadn't received the, the ILIDA in uh second fusion in six months, still had some residual mobility. And all were resolved um, by 12 months. Um, You can get the same sense of that looking at continuous glucose monitoring. This is the patient I shared with you earlier with the tracing prior to transplantation and then a year following transplantation. Um, This was ILITS 1 donor um, and uh, off insulin with uh, glucose maintained right around the homeostatic uh, set point. When you quantify these uh, CGM uh, metrics, looking at mean uh, glucose, you can see that over um, two years' follow-up, the uh, mean uh, glucose is in the 1-teens. And for the standard deviation, where um, it's often thought that uh, less than 40 is uh, um, very uh, uh, very good in terms of uh, low glycemic variability and, and above that, um, not as good. You can see these folks all have very high standard deviation uh, of glucose that was maintained uh, um, in this optimal range for the two years of follow-up. So we're also, in, in addition to the potential benefits of the islet transplants on metabolic control, I'm interested in the potential adverse effects of, of the immunosuppression. And so we uh, we're very carefully uh, examining kidney function. So we measure GFR by iohexol. So direct GFR measurement. You had to have a GFR over 80 to come into this to make sure that you could tolerate the immunosuppression. And you can see that uh, these are all uh, 11 patients. Um, there is uh, uh, you know some variability here. Some patients, GFR is decreasing while they're waiting for a transplant. Some go up after, some come down. Um, but all in all, this is uh, very, very stable. We had two... Uh, two patients who um, had to have, one, a reduction in dose of calcineur inhibitor um, and the other uh, actually developed um, uh, as shown here uh, some uh, microalbuminuria and was switched from the um, serolimus to um, mycophenolate mothetil, which resulted in resolution of the albuminuria and uh, correction of the the GFR. So um, you can see here, again, with with and a couple of folks were bouncing around prior to transplant, um, or one yeah one got temporarily worse and then went away and and uh, but for the most part we are not seeing um, major problems with uh, uh, proterine development um, with this regimen. Now serious adverse events uh, uh, also occurred, and we had intraperitoneal bleeding in two patients. One patient I told you about that occurred. somewhat uh, delayed following the procedure. We had another patient who, um, uh, as the interventional radiologist removes the uh, catheter, they uh, instill a gel foam plug. Um, This patient managed to cough at the moment the plug was uh, um, delivered, and, and the radiologist said they watched the plug get coughed out. At this point, they're not in the track, and we monitored the patient very carefully, but she did require... A laparoscopic washout uh, the, the next morning. So, uh, you know, so anytime you put a needle through the liver, there can be problems. When you look at the the whole, whole cohort of uh, individuals and number of procedures, it, it, about ten percent had some bleeding comp- complications. Some are self-limited subcapsular hematomas, but ten percent of the time you encounter some issue with this uh, uh, approach. We had one patient who developed a type 3 hypersensitivity reaction serum sickness to the thymoglobulin. Um, this is uh, a rabbit globulin, and um, uh, we learned later, this, uh, while this woman had no known allergy to rabbits, she had pet rabbits as a child, and uh, we were fortunate to recognize this in that 48-hour period prior to the islets being infused. So we, did, we aborted the islet uh, procedure... Uh, she went on to require a course of glucocorticoid, and we were glad the islets were not uh, uh, there. Um, and then she returned and had uh, a transplant under an IL-2 receptor antagonist, and has been uh, um, uh, that was you know now six or so years ago, and she's done very well with islets from one uh, infusion, remaining off, off insulin. So um, we had another uh, individual who. Um, Became allergic to bactrim and then uh, didn't tolerate the atovaquone prophylaxis for PCP. Um, and this individual, uh, you look at the, the statistics, and it's about a uh, you know a one in a thousand, a one in three thousand risk. But when you do things like this, they they can happen. And so uh, this patient um, uh, required um, uh, treatment for pneumocystis pneumonia, uh, and uh, and you know that was not. Not fun for anyone. So uh, those are the, the major problems that could be encountered from either procedural or immunosuppression um, being used. So to summarize this, this part, the achievement of target glycemic control and avoidance of severe hypoglycemia remain major challenges for the majority of patients with type 1 diabetes, relying on pharmacologic insulin delivery. Intrahepatic transplantation of purified islets isolated from a deceased donor pancreas may restore physiologic insulin delivery. Primary endpoint for evaluation of clinical allotransplantation transplantation has been defined as an A1C less than 7% without severe hypoglycemia episodes. And current protocols may result in recovery of sufficient beta cell secretory capacity to afford durable graft survival that resists metabolic exhaustion that's been seen in prior um, protocols improved metabolic control results in normalization of hepatic and peripheral insulin sensitivity despite the, the need for immunosuppression. But the benefits of islet transplantation on long-term improvement in glycemic control, especially the amelioration of problematic hypoglycemia and glycemic variability, must be balanced against this risk for procedural complications and of the immunosuppressive drugs. So just in uh, the, the last few minutes, I want to just review our studies in examining how the islet transplant may work to protecting uh, against hypoglycemia, um, as this protection has been well documented. Even in patients who do return to requiring some insulin therapy after after transplantation, and so we know that in response to a declining plasma glucose, um, our primary defense are uh, come from our islets. Insulin secretion is turned off. The turning off of of insulin secretion within the islet sends a paracrine uh, message to the alpha cell that's required in addition to the presence of low glucose to increase glucagon secretion and this normally increases hepatic glucose production sufficiently to correct or prevent the development of low low glucose so in our patients who've lost all functioning beta cells uh, they uh, not only cannot get rid of insulin when there's too much insulin on board they also can't activate glucagon secretion and so they're relying on these secondary defenses, which, which involve central recognition and, and activation of the adrenal response, increase epinephrine, which can increase hepatic glucose production, um, have effects on decreasing peripheral glucose utilization, as well as generate um, adrenergic symptoms that alert the individual to ingest food. Um, however, with um, repeated exposure to biochemical hypoglycemia, this doesn't need to be severe, this can be what occurs routinely, either um, following exercise, following meals, following uh, overnight, um, uh, leads to a, a blunting of this sympathetic adrenal responses and this syndrome of hypoglycemia associated autonomic failure. And so when you lo- lose um, your epinephrine and symptom generation, you become essentially defective glucose counter regulation. You can't make new glucose and you become uh, symptom unaware. So we we studied this using um, hyperinsulinemic um, and then we used paired euglycemic and hypoglycemic clamps. The euglycemic clamps uh, control for the effect of insulin itself on uh, glucagon um, uh, responses and endogenous glucose production. and. Uh, so th- this is our uh, experimental setup, and and uh, the type one patients prior to transplant, they received insulin overnight in our research center so that their blood glucose can be uh, controlled at the time the experiments start. You can see here that the uh, patients I'm showing you now, six months and eighteen months post transplant with the cit seven protocol, um, have uh, you know very normal um, fasting insulin levels, uh, and again uh, now here gray. Um, is the um, uh, 95% confidence interval of data from the euglycemic control experiments. So in in, in these sets, gray is euglycemia. So we have essentially the same hyperinsulinemic conditions with uh, hypoglycemia pre, 6, and 18 months post, as well as non-diabetic controls, and then uh, as under euglycemia. This shows the glucose... um, uh, levels. So here's our euglycemic data right between 85 and 90. And then you can see that the type 1's pre-transplant with IV insulin overnight managed to have a glucose starting at the 1-teens. And then our targets were with all the groups after an hour to be at 80, then uh, second hour 65, third hour 55, and the last hour 45 milligrams per deciliter. And so Looking at the beta cell response, um, here uh, I'm showing you actually the, the actual euglycemic data because it's important to uh, compare our type 1s, do not have any C-peptide that you can measure before transplant. Um, so here, the euglycemic uh, clamp, when you infuse insulin, uh, insulin inhibits its own secretion as shown here, even under euglycemic conditions. And that's believed to be uh, generated from the central nervous system. And this response occurs normally in the islet transplant recipients, as in controls. When you, in, when you add on top of that the hypoglycemic condition, you can see that the intrapatic islets turn off insulin entirely as do uh, uh, non-diabetic individuals. And so that should send a message to the alpha cells to release glucagon. And so when we look at that alpha cell response, Uh, Now, I've put back the euglycemic uh, data in in gray, showing that when you infuse insulin, glucagon is inhibited, and when you look at the patients prior to transplant, they release no more glucagon under hypoglycemic conditions as under euglycemic conditions. Yet, at 6 and 18 months following transplant, they have a restored glucagon response, albeit it's not not normal. And uh, when we look at our beta cell secretory capacity, we see about 40 to 50 percent of a Beta cell, functional beta cell mass. And so, what we think is the explanation here is you probably also have only about 40 to 50 percent of an alpha cell mass that can respond to the uh, hypoglycemic stimulus. And um, when we then look at the epinephrine response, um, you see here a, a markedly impaired epinephrine response in these individuals prior to transplant. There's significant improvement at six months. What's remarkable is that by 18 months, their epinephrine is entirely normal. And so this has a lot of implications for how we think about um, restoring hypoglycemic awareness and, and counter-regulation, regardless of our approaches in type 1 diabetes, because it takes a long time to get there, even with really uh, you know, eliminating all exposure to, to hypoglycemia. And when we look at their symptom responses... Uh, we can see here again these patients had no more symptoms, whoops, under the hypoglycemic condition as under euglycemia prior to transplant, but they had a, a restoration of their symptom responses uh, following transplantation. And when we look now at glucose production from the liver, so um, uh, endogenous glucose production is suppressed by insulin as seen here with the euglycemic data. And here, prior to transplantation, these patients release no more insulin from their liver than under uh, uh, under hypoglycemic, under euglycemic conditions. And here is the endogenous glucose production following transplantation, um, which uh, the, the uh, kinetics of these curves look a little different from normal, and we don't know if that's because of how the islands are now located within the liver, but it nonetheless uh, um, is... Uh, uh, not different statistically from the levels of production achieved uh, in our non-diabetic controls during hypoglycemia. And when you look at lipolysis uh, as a fuel for this new glucose production, again, absent lipolytic response prior to transplantation, that is entirely normal uh, following transplantation. So we think that by um, restoring our primary alpha cell responses to achieve effective avoidance of hypoglycemia that we've restored these primary and secondary defenses against uh, declining low glucose, uh, corrected the ability to uh, prevent hypoglycemia by responding with an increase in endogenous glucose production, um, and protect our patients from hypoglycemia. Um, This work has been done uh, uh, together with um, my mentors in transplantation, Dr. Ali Naji, who directs our uh, pancreas kidney, as well as our, our uh, islet transplant uh, program at Penn, and my mentor in metabolism, uh, Dr. Karen Teff, um, and uh, support from our Diabetes Center clinical director, Mark Shuda, uh, Chen Yang Lu, who directs our GMP facility for islet isolation, um, close uh, 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 interactions with our uh, tissue typing laboratory, Dr. Juan Kamun and Eileen Living Pratt. And we had one dedicated interventional radiologist, uh, uh, Rich Lansky-Goldberg, for all these procedures. The insulin sensitivity work is part of a long-standing collaboration with uh, Murat Riley, who's now here at, at Columbia um, in your Irvine uh, Institute, and Jane uh, Ferguson. And, and this work has been supported by um, NIH, JDRF, and the Smith, Schiffer, and Humpton families. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much. Perfect. I'm sure there are a bunch of questions. Megan. Um, great talk. The um, <coughs> recovery of an autonomic response to type of glycemic implies that the autonomic neuropathy has improved, and we see improvement in other manifestations of autonomic neuropathy and also of sensory neuropathy. So, <laughs> yeah, great, great question. So um, we did not quantify peripheral neuropathy in, in, in these patients, but I can tell you that clinically, um, most, if maybe one, but most did not have peripheral neuropathy. And the, this islet alone group is very different from the islet after kidney group, where with patients who reached end-stage kidney disease often have much more advanced retinopathy and neuropathy. Um, in studies with whole pancreas transplantation, even after many years, the um, epinephrine response to hypoglycemia is not normal. And that has long been interpreted as potentially being due to underlying autonomic neuropathy that was irreversible. And with longer-term follow-up uh, going on years in pancreas transplantation, there is some evidence that, uh, that neuropathy improves. Um, there's other work out of the um, uh, group in Vancouver uh, as well as the group in Australia that have shown some improvements in measures of peripheral neuropathy in patients following islet transplantation. But we, uh, we did evaluate pancreatic polypeptide responses, which I did not show here, but they, uh, they're in the, the, um, the publications. And pancreatic polypeptide, which is a, um, a marker of vagal innervation of the islet and is markedly impaired prior to transplantation uh, is significantly improved and further improved at, at 18 months. So similar to what we see with the, the epinephrine. So we think that these patients don't have such advanced neuropathy that it that, can, can't be reversed. But whether you'd see the same thing in an islet after kidney population um, would need to be assessed, but would not be predicted to be so from pancreas transplant uh, data. So, yeah, so, so we have, um, we, we've had the question I'm not sure. Yeah. So the question is whether you can take a short period of, uh, avoidance of hypoglycemia and restore these responses. And I think it depends on where you're capturing people. So if you're capturing people who have not had, um, unawareness for very long and maybe really aren't unaware, they might have some impaired awareness, um, and, uh, they ha- and they also haven't had diabetes that long. Um, uh, uh, both duration of diabetes and duration of the problems with hypoglycemia predict how easily it can be reversed. So absolutely the first line of defense is ensuring that they are carb counting correctly, that they're doing everything they can to monitor their glucose. Now we have sensors on top of, of uh, 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 finger stick glucose monitoring. Uh, you can op- now avoid hypoglycemia with uh, uh, sensor communicating pumps with, with low glucose suspension. So there's a lot of things that you can do, but so we've. But but I, my my answer to that will be in patients with shorter duration and not such a long history of the problem, it is likely that you can train them and improve a, a fair number of those. Uh, to these were all patients who've been there, done that, and, uh, and had to really demonstrate that through very detailed documentation. and, and, and so, so let me just challenge that for yeah, yeah. a moment, because we've all seen these patients, yeah. and do you think there's something different physiologic about those patients, or psychiatric? Well, what I think uh, I've shown that physiologically, There is something different in that they... But you didn't have the control of the patients who had their hypoglycemia corrected medically? Well, so I I was getting to that. So we have taken in, um, this was presented at the ADA in June, the same criteria that we used to select patients for all transplantation. And when we were no longer enrolling for this protocol, we enrolled them into a protocol of applying real-time continuous glucose monitoring with the, uh, to, uh, implement a strategy of hypoglycemic avoidance, followed the same uh, six months of intensive uh, support from the research team in implementing this and adjusting everything so that compliance was 100%, alarms were set and tolerated, and we could decrease you know time spent hypoglycemic. At six and 18 months, uh, so glucagon just by the biology does not get any better, so there's no response there. Epinephrine marginally improved, it was not statistically significant. In digest glucose production, by 18 months, there's a little bit of an effect, uh, but not, not much. And during that period, two patients had to drop out because they had, um, on the sensor, severe hypoglycemic episodes that uh, ended up in, in one, uh, uh, actually had a traumatic fall and amputation and couldn't return for the six month testing. Another had an MI uh, associated with it and but couldn't. But they're not inpatients. They're administering the insulin, right? They are not <laughs> inpatients. Uh, but I would, yeah, I would challenge that in, in de- and again, it depends on how they come into this. But if they've really, this has been a protracted problem, that even bringing them in for a few days, uh, I, I'm not aware of data that have shown uh, recovery in, in this population. You mentioned that they're PYY, I mean, that they're polypeptide. Yeah. Um, so, does does that suggest to you that the islets within the liver are yeah. re innervated? Because, what do we know about the normal vagal innervation of the liver, much less how it can re innervate something that can be driven by PYY? That, that, that's a great question. And so, um, we can't answer that because we do know that. In patients with type 1 diabetes, um, when they don't have defective glucose counter-regulation, they do have an intact pancreatic polypeptide response. So their glucagon response is absent, but they can respond with with PP. And the PP response correlates very well with their defective counter-regulation. Because of that, I can't say whether it's coming from a, a recovery of the native islet PP response or from the transplanted islet. Um, whether vagal innervation occurs in the islets um, is is possible and so we are in future studies going to be doing looking at patients who've had pancreatectomy with auto islet transplantation to look at the PP response there. there. That gets a little muddy because patients with pancreatic disease often have impaired pancreatic polypeptide responses from their islets as their initial islet defects so there may be some problems with, with that approach but um, but, but but we don't know. We think the sympathetic nervous system must get there because during the hyperinsulinemic euglycemia, we see this partial suppression of C peptide, and when whole pancreas transplant recipients are studied under hyperinsulinemic euglycemic, their C peptide stays stays flat. It doesn't I- inhibit, and and experimentally that's been shown to be due to uh, central. Um, a sensing of insulin and activation of the, the sympathetic nervous system within the liver. But it sounds like some of the secretory improvements happened early on, so early that it would precede any possibility for functional re of the transplant. From a secretory. Yeah, although we're, well, well for the counterweight responses, we're assessed after, at six months. So... Um, Other questions? Terrific, thank you very much.